0: Well, good morning. It's, I'm definitely grateful to be back. Um, Bethany and the kids are here, are supposed to be in the parking lot. Um, the kids have tested positive this week, and so they're still not outside that, what is considered safe time frame, I guess. So they're here if you wanna say hi to them out there. Um, I'm just grateful that, for the opportunity to be back in the pulpit this morning. Um, and thank you to those of you who checked in on us. Thank you for those who provided some meals. I really, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time dwelling on, on things on COVID because really it didn't impact our family too much. Um, indeed, we were sick. It felt more like a cold. Other than canceling some plans, it really didn't slow us down. Um, I do want to tell you a story, though, and that story is to kind of set the direction of our message this morning and set the tone as we look into God's word. It was two weeks ago when I started feeling sick. Um, It didn't even occur to me that it was COVID because I have no idea where I would have gotten it. Um, At that point, I really hadn't been out in public too much. Um, I was sick enough that I texted Daryl one morning and said, you need to know I'm not feeling well. I don't know why. Just be prepared in case I'm not able to come to church. At that time, even now, I know this isn't the most efficient use of my time, but I handwrite all my notes before I put them into the computer. And when I was feeling sick after I texted Daryl, I really didn't feel up to being able to put my notes into the computer. And so Bethany got home that afternoon. I actually had her type my notes. By Sunday, though, I actually felt a lot better. Every test I had taken had come back negative, and so I came to church Um, because it looked like it wasn't COVID and I was getting better. But I definitely knew I wasn't up to 100%. And so I did several things. First off, you may not have noticed, but I actually brought a chair on stage that Sunday when I preached, um, simply because I thought I might have to sit down while I was speaking, and I almost did. Um, The second thing is I did keep my distance. I did come to the Super Bowl party that night, but if you'll notice, I didn't greet anybody before or after church. Um, I did have lunch with Sonel, hence Sonel getting sick. (laughs) Um, So I'll take the blame for that. When I preached, though, not only was I adapting to how Bethany put my notes into the computer, but I ended up having to preach very slow and very intentional. My intention was to go through the message and go through where we're at today, Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 25. It's a long passage, and I had seven points, and so my intention was to hit four one week and three the next week. By having to go slow, I barely hit two that week, and knowing what I know about people and even myself, I know that we tend to forget things in between. And so this morning, I want to return to those scriptures, but I want to begin by giving an overview very quickly of what I went over that Sunday and maybe highlight some key things and then hit two more points so that next week we can then come back and take on the final three points. And so why that's why this passage is going a little bit slower. So I don't think I can cover it in one message. It was definitely too much for three, but I think that's where we're at. Um, and I think that's okay. I will warn you that this morning our time in the Word is difficult. The lessons that we pull out from Paul's teaching here are hard, and I would say, or I hope, they would confront our own hard attitudes. So I do want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter one, and I want to bring to you the message I've called Seven Characteristics of a Ministry in Reconciliation, of Reconciliation. Um, As always, I'd ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's word. Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in christ for this i toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me chapter 2 verse 1 for i want you to know how great a struggle i have for you and for those at laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged This morning, I want to begin by sharing with you the story of two couples. The first couple is one who, after a very difficult situation in church, one that was harsh and handled very poorly, they chose to leave. Their search for a new church took them to a few new places in their hometown. But they never stayed more than one Sunday. There was always something wrong. They were looking for the perfect church, but of course, no church is perfect. Therefore, they were never satisfied and now they spend their Sundays at home, investing only an hour of their time each week by watching a sermon online before returning to their typical routine at home. The other couple I share with you is a couple who was not searching for the perfect church, but for the imperfect church. As strange as that may sound, the husband in particular would tell you that his calling from God was to show up at a church and then tell the church everything they were doing wrong. No joke, he actually did this. (laughs) That couple would stay until the church would finally ask them to leave, which usually (laughs) happened about six to eight weeks later. And really, the church had no choice. Because this couple, even though they weren't members, would come in and after a day or two begin causing dissension and division. And so they really had no choice but to ask them to leave. Besides, examination would reveal that their issues were never biblical, but personal. There is the old adage that pastors tell people that if you find the perfect church, don't go because then it will be imperfect. There's some truth in that. James has written in his epistle that every good and perfect gift is indeed from God. I would think that the church, the institution of the church, falls within that passage, within that category, that indeed it is a good and perfect gift from God. It is a glorious institution that reflects the gloriousness of God. We forget, though, that in its current state it is imperfect because it's made up of imperfect people. It's not so much that those around us are flawed, but that we ourselves are flawed. But the church indeed is a God-ordained, and because it is from God, it is a beautiful thing. Who among us could ever come up with the institution of the church and function according to his word and his way? Dustin Benj writes, the church has played a central role in many of our lives. She is nurtured in times of grief, shepherded in valleys of despair, and instructed in seasons of growth. We love her people, we love her ministries, we love her teaching, and we love her comfort. When we think of Christ, and Christ looking upon his bride, which is the church, I am reminded of the words of the 18th century pastor John Gill, who considers or thinks about Christ looking upon his bride and and says that Christ is commending the beauty of the church. And he sees Christ expressing great affection for her and having high esteem. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to truly be the object of Christ's affection? That is what the church is. The church is a reminder that God is still at work even in difficult times in society that God is at work even amongst the nations that have chosen to reject him. One of the greatest sources of conflict in the church today, though, is that most of us want a church that reflects our glory, not a church that reflects God's glory. This morning we look upon Paul's own description of his ministry, of the ministry that the Lord gave him. And my hope is that we will better understand the Lord's request of us, in our service to him. So I want to remind you from our teaching two weeks ago, the suffering found in verse 24. The text reads, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. A ministry of reconciliation is defined by a willingness to suffer. We began our study in Colossians this morning in one of the most difficult passages or the most difficult sentences to understand in all of Colossians. When Christ says, I am filling up what is lacking, Paul says, sorry, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Suffering and the church go hand in hand. Not only do we see that throughout all of church history, But we know that Christ himself warned of that. And yet Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering. In our scripture reading this morning, Paul talked of his physical suffering, his physical ailment. And yet, what did he do in that Galatians 4 text? He turned it into an opportunity to preach the word, to share the gospel. The wrath and the anger and hatred that people felt for Christ certainly was not appeased at the death of Christ. And so what Paul is referring to here is simply that before Christ returns, indeed, there's going to be suffering. And the Lord knows how much suffering that will be. The people at the cross wanted more. And their hatred was never fully fulfilled. And so now it is manifested against those who follow Christ. That is true just as much during Paul's time as it is today. And so the suffering that Paul is filling up is simply bringing us closer to the point of Christ's return. Homer Kent, as I quoted before, says it this way, far better is the view that these sufferings are actually those which a hostile world imposed first on Christ and now continues to afflict upon those who are identified with him. In this way, Paul's sufferings are filling up the number of afflictions in God's plan. I want you to note, second, the stewardship found in verses 25 through 27. He writes, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known to you how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The second characteristic of a ministry of reconciliation is stewardship. Stewardship is the idea of most effectively using our God-given resources for the glory of God. It is not limited to finances only, It includes our time, our people, our resources, our building, and so much more. When I was at a Bible school, each of us was assigned different responsibilities, work that we had to do every week. My area was called Dormia. It was a Spanish word that they used in their culture to mean stewardship. That's what they called this group. And what this group did was took care of things like the cleaning of their conference center, even cleaning the bathrooms. It was a stewardship of the facilities they had been given. Paul explains his role as a steward. But in this case, in our text, he's very specific on what he's stewarding. He knows that he cares for the church by making the word of God known and revealing the mystery that has been hidden for the ages. Specifically, what we see him revealing is the fact that God has included the Gentiles into the Lord's plan, a mystery that was hidden throughout the whole Old Testament and yet is revealed upon Christ, specifically in Matthew 12, where Jesus turns his attention to the Gentiles, to the Ephesians. Paul writes in chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring the light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Certainly, Israel knew that one day the Messiah would come out of their midst. That's what prophecy had revealed and they had been long awaiting this. But it wasn't until Christ came that they understood the Messiah's intention was not just to rescue Israel, but to save the whole world from their sins. A ministry of reconciliation, then, is one of stewarding the gospel. The Lord has given us the gospel, and what we do with that is a matter of stewardship on our part. Will we adulterate it? Will we declare it? Will we hide it? Or will we share it freely, What will we do with this gift that God has given us to steward? I now want you to note third, the shepherding of verse 28. It's there we read, him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. A ministry of reconciliation must be defined by shepherding. Any ministry, whether corporate or individual, whose sole priority is to call people to Christ, is a ministry that has failed to heed the call of Christ. Never does scripture present evangelism as a final ambition by itself. Instead, the Lord's plan is always more profound calling on professing believers not to be content or stagnant in their growth, but ever growing further towards their comprehensive maturity in Christ. So the call of Christ is not to merely declare his gospel, but to make disciples, to not make converts, but make people who follow and look like Christ. The Apostle Paul does not determine this purpose by his own free will, it follows directly from his exaltation of Christ that he gave in the previous verses. He says that in verse 22, he identifies there the purpose of Christ. And he says that Christ has, himself has a ministry of reconciliation in which he will present people as holy and blameless and above reproach. Paul's intention here then is to present followers of Christ as mature And it's simply a continuation of the work of Christ. Paul didn't set this agenda himself. He simply follows the model that Christ set forth. Our translation here that I read this morning uses the word mature. Some of your versions may use the word perfect and I will tell you that neither word really is that great of an expression of the text. Commentator Douglas Moo notes that the word perfect is too strong because it conveys a standard of absoluteness, absolute purity, absolute integrity, absolute morality, which is certainly an impossible standard for any of us to achieve while we battle with the flesh. But the word mature is too weak, because it's a subjective word. And so when we think of maturity and being mature in Christ, what we begin to do is compare ourselves to another person and think, well, I'm more mature than him, and more mature than her. The result, then, is we deem ourselves okay, and mature enough. And so we become content. So neither of those words sufficiently captures the text before us. Instead, I would tell you that we must understand this word as guiding people towards God, so that they are so wholeheartedly devoted to him, that it is displayed in their conduct, so that indeed they stand before God blameless. It is the example we find in Noah in Genesis 6-9, where he's described as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. In fact, it says Noah walked with God. Readers here of Colossians chapter 1 They're not left to wonder how such a lofty goal is to be accomplished. Paul makes it clear in his text. He says it occurs by the proclamation of Christ. And then he gives us two ways that happens. First, by admonition or warning everyone. The idea is that in view of sin and punishment, Paul is simply giving encouraging counsel to guide people away from that sin and punishment. He's teaching the Colossians how to turn away so that they may have behavior that is consistent with the gospel that they've heard. While conversing with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, Paul says, I testify to you all this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul's ministry includes admonition. The tears here indicate a difficulty of such a task, though. And yet that never causes Paul to hesitate, it never causes him to procrastinate, and never does he neglect this responsibility. Counseling in the midst of sin is tiresome because it requires all of us to carry the burden. And yet any person who has ever endured such a process will tell you of the beautiful conclusions that result if they've seen it all the way through. I suspect that we've all seen admonition done well and done poorly. Perhaps we've even been part of it. There's a reason that Paul writes in our text in Colossians that it must be done with all wisdom. Such a delicate task must be undertaken with an attitude of wisdom. Without it, admonition is done selfishly and harshly, eventually causing more harm than it does help. But advancing towards the goal of maturity is not all negative the first one he shares here is negative but then he goes into a positive aspect and says that it is done through teaching meaning that paul has undertaken the task to impart god's truth not only is he admonishing them but he's teaching them god's truth paul urges timothy to do the same in his ministry writing in 2 timothy 4 preach the word in season and out of season we could translate or preach the word, whether it's convenient or not. This point differentiates Christian ministry from secular ministry, if we could ever say that there's a secular ministry. it not for this point, the church would be nothing more than any other organization that seeks to do good works. A ministry of reconciliation like that of Paul seeks to bring people to a point of devotion to God by imparting truth and teaching about Christ. The two must always go together, admonition and teaching. They must always both be present in ministry. Paul will combine these two things later in Colossians 3.16, saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom again. To have admonition without teaching not only means that admonition might lack truth, but it leaves a person feeling beaten down. And yet to have teaching without admonition leaves, leaves a person to persist in their own sin. And so both are crucial, critical elements to the function of any ministry. It is these functions that makes both the participation and membership of church, crucial. Joining the church means we're placing ourselves under the care and the teaching and discipline of our fellow believers. When we come before and say, I'm joining this church, we are saying, I'm entrusting this church to care for me, to bring me to maturity. At the same time, it is a commitment to be responsible for the growth of others and the spiritual maturity of others. Such a responsibility is both unselfish and serious. Being part of the church means I'm placing myself under the care of others, but also that I'm willing to care for others. I know of a young couple who struggled on the mission field. They were alone, they had no other coworkers near them. Their churches didn't check in on them. I don't think their agency did. Most of their contentions were hidden. You would never know that there were any problems going on. But I would tell you when you're sent to the mission field, sin is heightened. And you see Satan try to attack more. And so eventually their problems were revealed because they started to impact ministry. And that's when people began to realize just how serious it was. And this couple was on the verge of divorce when finally their home church stepped in and said, We think you need to leave the field, at least for a time, maybe not permanently. Husband, in particular, resisted submission to this, resisted submission to the local church. He would tell you it was one of the most uncomfortable, heart wrenching, and even most painful experiences that he ever encountered because it meant he had to be confronted with who he really was. And that's never easy. And yet now, several years later, he would credit the church's willingness to commit to his maturity through teaching and admonition for not only saving his marriage and ministry, but for bringing him to a point of restoration and repentance in a way that glorified God. If you're reading the book from our study, you'll come across a quote from Colin Hansen. He says, we gather with the church weekly because that's where we hear from our, divi- our divine king, his good news and his counsel for our lives. We hear from him every time we open our Bibles, but we also hear from him together in the weekly gathering. We're shaped together as people there. A ministry of reconciliation is defined by shepherding people because the goal is not salvation only. The goal is sanctification. I want you to note fourth, the struggle that makes up verse 29 or striving. Verse 29 and verse 1 say this. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. A ministry of reconciliation is defined by striving. Any activity motivated by love is an activity managed by labor. It requires us to work. A labor for the Lord and his people cannot be a passive work. We don't just sit back and hope things happen. It requires both a willful strain and a willful sacrifice, and sometimes to little-known effect. If we're not willing to work for our Lord, are we worthy of receiving his work for us? In looking at the text, I want you to look at three aspects of Paul's striving and struggle. First, you see it as specific. If we've learned anything about Paul, and his character, one aspect that seems to be notable is his intentional planning. Never does he work in a haphazard manner. Paul never merely tries anything and everything and hopes that it will work, but he's always very calculated in what he does. (coughs) We see this in his letter to the Romans, where he not only shares his desire to visit the Romans, but also says, my plans are to go visit Spain as well. In fact, way back in September last year, I preached to you from Romans 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. From that text, I showed you Paul's plan for ministry. And all that we saw was that Paul simply follows Christ's plan in Acts 1.8, in which Paul sets, his, sets forth his agenda to first take the word of God, the truth, locally, and then eventually expands outward to hit the region before eventually desiring to take it worldwide. That's what Christ calls on the church to do in Acts 1.8. Paul always follows a determined plan. And that's no different here. He labors by defined intentional work. He says in verse 29, I toil for this. That word, this, is important because it refers back to the previous verses, indicating that Paul's toils are defined by his goal to present everyone mature in Christ. I toil to present everyone mature in Christ. And as we just learned, that initiative then is simply a continuation of the work that Christ initiated to present everyone perfect, holy, and blameless. Much like his work that came from Christ's decree in Acts 1.8, Paul's initiative here in ministry and anywhere is always defined by Christ's work and Christ's initiative. That must be how it is for any ministry, including ours. The Lord has given us only a limited number of resources, including money and time and people. And so our work must be defined by Christ's work and not our own agenda. Second, you see that it's not only specific, but it's strenuous. Twice in these verses, in verse 29 and now verse 1, Paul uses some form of the word struggle or striving. Paul's known for his athletic metaphors that he uses throughout his epistles. And once again, he's chosen to use a word here that conveys an athletic metaphor. It's meant to conjure up images of a person or an athlete who is engaged into competition in which that person is struggling or striving or fighting to become the first in that competition. That's the meaning of the word struggle here. It's like a long-distance runner who is endeavoring to reach the finish line. He does so with the intention of coming in first and winning the race. He's giving all that he has expending energy with every move finally arriving at the finish line winded and gasping for breath the greek word here is agonizomai can you hear our english word in there agony? it comes from, our word agony comes from this word the idea then is paul is laboring to the point that it causes him physical pain point of this phrase is that Paul's expending himself for ministry, using all his energy to the point of exhaustion for the sake of seeing the Lord's work continue. Notice something important about how Paul labors so. He labors for a specific purpose, and he may exhaust himself doing so, but he does so regardless of what the outcome will be. We read in Galatians 4.11 this morning, Paul tells them, I am afraid... I may have labored over you in vain. We could say that Paul was foolish to work so hard. Indeed, it's a bit unreasonable for anybody to expend so much energy and effort and no good outcome be achieved. Except for the fact that Paul labors specifically in a pattern after God's own plan. The significance of Paul's work is not derived from the outcome of that work. The importance is derived from the one who gave him that work, which was God. The lessons here are far-reaching. Whether it be for corporate ministries, the body of Christ, or even our own personal living as individuals, the goal isn't to achieve the perfect outcome. The goal is to achieve perfect obedience. The biggest setback to achieving that is that we often don't know what God's plan is. And if we do, we're often not willing to set aside our own own will for his will. Paul's work was to fulfill the Lord's work. The submission and sacrifice of Paul allows him to confidently write to the Corinthians. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Being part of the body of Christ is hard because it makes us responsible for one another. Sometimes it means late nights or early mornings. It always requires a submission of our personal time for the sake of another. It also always requires the sacrifice of our pride, setting aside our wants for somebody else's needs. If the only time you and I will engage in ministry with the church is when it's convenient for us, and according to what we want to be done, we're doing ministry wrong. A ministry of reconciliation is hard work. Or to use Paul's word, it is a struggle, requiring us to strive to the point of exhaustion. Are we willing to expend ourselves for the Lord's work. I want you to notice a third point. It is sustained. Notice that Paul's ministry is sustained. Did you notice that when I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, I didn't read the whole verse. I didn't read the ending. Paul writes, I worked harder than any of them. That statement in itself would be a profoundly prideful statement. And it certainly wouldn't be something we would expect Paul to write. Except he then goes on and says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul labors intensely not to see himself work, but to see the Lord work. He tells the Colossians in our text, I toil, struggling with all his energy. We would expect somebody to write a letter and say, I'm struggling with all my energy. But Paul writes, I'm working with his energy. I read to you Ephesians chapter 3 earlier. In verse 7, he tells the Ephesians, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul may be quick to point out his labors, but only to serve a purpose, because he's even quicker to point out that it is by the Lord's work. Note that it is always by the Lord's will, the Lord's grace, and the Lord's strength that Paul works. That's what makes a ministry of reconciliation even possible. We just talked about how hard it is, how strenuous it is, that it requires every effort of our energy, so much so that without the Lord's work, we would be exhausted and unmotivated. But we can be assured that if God called us to do it, to labor specifically for him as he did Paul, then he will strengthen us to do it. This is why it's important, though, that a ministry doesn't just take on anything and everything but rather it must be in line with God's will. Think about this. On Wednesday nights, we've been studying the attributes of God. This past week, we've talked about the wisdom of God and how God is wise enough to know exactly how to use his power and use his energy and his will. Before that, we talked about God's omniscience, that God knows all things about all things. That means that he knows exactly what ministry he has in store for us. And if the Lord has specified a plan of ministry for us as individuals and for this church, then he knows exactly what is required to accomplish that. He knows how many half inches of the building space is needed. He knows how many half pennies we need to spend for materials. And he knows how every half gram of energy required from us. If the Lord is supplying the strength, then he knows exactly how much is required. He's not supplying the strength for his people to chase their wills, but to chase his will. We've talked much this morning about Russia invading Ukraine this week. And no doubt you've probably seen the stories of heroism that have emerged. There's one story of a young man who sacrificed his life in order to blow up a bridge, in order to protect his town. There's certainly an example of strategic sacrifice there. But my thoughts go to a missionary family in Ukraine that made the decision to stay. The father writes that those who could afford to leave indeed did leave for the most part. Not just the expats, people who weren't from Ukraine, but high-ranking government officials businessmen, people who had money, and yet his family chose to remain. Currently, each member of their family, he, his wife, and their four daughters, live with a bag packed. And in it, they've put three days of items that they may need, whether it be clothes or toiletries or whatever, and they do stand ready to leave if necessary. In the meantime, they've spent time preparing for this moment. Weeks ago, they began to stockpile food and water and started storing it away, but not for themselves. They stored it away for the church, first to give to people in the church as they may need it, but also to give to others as a witness and testimony for the church. Then their church began a time of fasting and prayer. And in doing so, they started meeting every day over the week in the evenings. The average church attender in the United States makes it two out of every four Sundays in a month, and that's under normal circumstances. With the power cut off and a threat of war above them, these believers came out nightly. It remains to be seen what the sacrifice will cost them. But the father writes, I'm convinced that if the church is not relevant at a time of crisis, then it is not relevant at a time of peace. This is what it looks like to struggle for our Lord and his people. Are we convinced that our God is Lord and so convinced of that, that we are convicted to struggle for the Lord's people? We live in a society of consumerism. It's a society of individuals who say, I know what I want. And I expect to get what I want, and if I can't, then I'm going to go elsewhere. Unfortunately, that's how people treat the church as well. They act as though it's like their local grocery store. They show up with their shopping list of wants, and then they go through selecting what they want. And if they can't find it, they go to another store or another church. Sometimes what they want is available, but the price is simply more than they want to pay. So they go elsewhere. Some of you may say, well, that's obviously not me. I've been here 10 years or 20 years or even 40 years. That's true, but I bet you still have your shopping list of expectations. And before you get too offended and say, what right do I have to make that comment to you? Or how could I even say such a thing? I'll tell you this, I can say such a thing about you because I could say it about me. I entered church with my own expectations just as much as I know every other person does because I know the human heart and I know we're very much alike. And if you're still thinking that's not me, then to put it bluntly, you're probably self-deceived. Think about the last time you criticized the church Was it based on God's priorities or my preferences? By examining Paul's ministry of reconciliation from our text, I think we see that all of our expectations are unreasonable because ministry is not based on our requirements, but on God's requirements. And so thus far in our study, we've seen Paul outline four aspects of a ministry of reconciliation. First, it is defined by suffering. We live in a world that hates God and their hate for him will be expressed by hating those who follow him. Be assured, if you're living in a way that is pleasing to God, then the world is probably not pleased by you. Second, it is defined by stewardship. Stewarding the gospel by steering it towards others in its pure and unadulterated form. Third, ministry is defined by shepherding, guiding believers towards maturity in Christ through teaching and admonition. And fourth, a ministry of reconciliation is defined by striving, strenuous labor that is both specified and sustained by God. Any ministry for God should be defined by these characteristics. As we close, those of you who were here last year, I want you to think back, all the way back to January 24th last year. At that time in my candidating process, I shared with you Colossians 1.28, the very text we read this morning. And I told you that that was my goal for ministry, to present people mature in Christ. By Paul's desire for the Colossians, my desire is for our church and our people to grow in Christ likeness. Not merely so that one day we can stand before God and be found holy and perfect and blameless because of Christ's work, but that so today we can be found perfect and blameless. My heart's desire is that we would be so oriented towards God that our behavior shows our love for him as well. Indeed, I do have my own expectations and preferences. But more than anything, I hope That all is that all that I do is guided by the Lord's will and not my wants. Everything I do is strategic and calculated, filtered through the goal of guiding each of us, including myself and my family, towards maturity in Christ. And I hope my testimony of the last years, one of striving and struggling like Paul, in a way that is strenuous for the purposes that are specified and sustained by God. Sure enough, being part of ministry indeed comes at a high cost, but nobody paid more than God himself. Let's pray. Father God, indeed this is your work and your will. We're grateful for the beauty of the church Grateful for the institution of a church that can both reflect your glory and do your work on earth, Lord. Father, it is a reminder indeed that even in these trying times and these questions of what is going on, we know that indeed you are at work because you placed people here to work on your behalf. And so, Father, I pray that we would take that seriously. But, Father, I pray that it wouldn't be our work but it would be your work. Father, help us to to labor and strive and, and exert ourselves to the point of exhaustion, but doing so according both to your purposes and to your strength, Lord. Because we know that on our own, we simply don't have the strength to endure some of the things that you've called us to endure, but rather it is only a testimony of the work of your spirit in our lives. And so, Lord, I pray that we would submit this work to you, seeking to honor and glorify you with it, that we may be presented mature in Christ, and, Lord, that we may take your gospel out and see others be presented mature in Christ. So we commit all these things to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.